I don't know if you're excited this morning, but let me just say you should be, because we're going to open today with a trip in the time machine. I know, right? Time travel. So let's, well, we're going to set our, our time coordinates to 1983. Some of y'all weren't around then, some of you were. I was less round then than I am now. And it's an early October afternoon in 1983 on the playground at Sophia Elementary School. I am nine years old, and I'm playing a little kickball with some of my classmates at this fine learning establishment that is no longer there. It's my turn to kick, and I'm pretty sure I kicked the ball about a mile or so, and I start running the bases, and I'm thinking, home run, home run. I round third base, and I'm speeding for home, and I am very speedy in 1983. And when a boy that I don't like, we won't name him just to be nice, throws said kickball and hits me before I make it to home plate. Now it was a bang bang play. Now I'm going to try to make an appeal that I was not out. Okay? And that the ball actually hit me after I crossed the plate. So I begin to argue with him and the other team when they say that I was out. Well, Mr. Ball Thrower runs up and gets in my face and says, You're out, and you know it. Am not, I cleverly retorted. R2, he ingeniously shoots shoots back. Am not, R2, am not, R2, am not, or back and forth a few rounds of that until finally he decides to take a different path. You're a liar, he says. I know I am, but I'm not sure how to respond. So I break out the magnum opus, the creme de la creme of third grade comebacks. Your mama. (laughs) And the whole playground goes, ooh. I'm quite proud of myself, feeling like I've won this battle. When my enemy erupts and tackles me and starts hitting me over and over and over again, yelling all the while, Don't you talk about my mama! Thankfully, our teacher comes over and rescues me before any serious damage is done. And I was called out. Out. Now, what lesson do I learn in this infamous battle? The lesson that I learned was, if you really want to get somebody's goat, talk about their mama. And that's an important lesson. And kids, don't do that. Don't ever do that. Do as I say, not as I do. Nothing pushes a third grader's buttons like the old classic, your mama. And we won't get into any your mama jokes this morning. We won't do that. But what we're going to see today, and you're thinking, what in the world does this have to do with anything? Well, today we're going to see Jesus break out a couple of top 
shelf shockers to his Jewish hearers. And it's going to hit them harder than a your mama hits a third grader. Let's look at our text from today. It's Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. It's a big passage, but has to be taken all together just because of the context. So if you would, please stand as we move into the Word of God again. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? Or have you not read... Oh, I'm missing a slide there. I'm missing something. I'll have to read it from here. There it was. How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep... If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Let's pray. Father, as we look into your word, I do pray that your very spirit, whom you have given freely, would teach us, instruct us, convict us, save us if need be today, God. Pray that we would see the gravity of the situation that we're talking about today and pray that we would see the beauty and the glory and the power and the majesty of the Christ who it is telling us about. We ask for your help in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Quite a passage. So, as you can probably, well, and I'm sure you can see, we move into chapter 12 today of Matthew. We've been working through Matthew and having finished up chapter 11 last week. We move into chapter 12, and, and, and as chapter 11 ended last week, Jesus was asserting His sovereignty. He was really proclaiming His Godness, And people are starting to get upset. Even though He had extended an invitation for all who were weary and heavy laden to come to Him and to find rest for their souls... Even though that was going on, we said last week that some doubts were creeping in about Jesus amongst the crowds and even those who were close to Him, even those as close as John the Baptist who was starting to doubt and have questions about Jesus and His ministry. We also said that Jesus was starting to feel the heat of more wrath than prior 
from the scribes and Pharisees. And we could see why as Jesus called God His Father. We talked about that last week. Asserted His Godness by saying that His Father, God, had handed all things over to Him and that He had hidden His ways from those who considered themselves wise but had revealed those ways to little children, the ones cast off by the religious elite. Pharisaic brows were being furrowed to say the least. But today, they're just going to go absolutely ballistic when they hear what Jesus is going to say in this passage. It's quite a jar for them. So buckle up. It's going to get real interesting. Verse 1, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. So we, we said last week, and we've said a few times before, so many of these passages start with a, a time-based phrase, right? And here we have at that time. Now what time does this indicate? Well, nothing very clear, nothing real sure. But one thing that we do know, if you look, it says His disciples were hungry. So the disciples have come back. You know, sometime after the disciples had been sent out and now they were back. That's one time stamp that we have. So the disciples were with Jesus. Now the phrase itself at that time can be taken generically. It's kind of like when we talk and we say once or remember when, that kind of thing. What Don was saying this morning. It can be a generic or it can be a specific pointer uh, but I'm, I'm not sure that this phrase points to a specific time. It's like Matthew, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is remembering a certain time and at that time. And we know that this is a time when hostility is mounting against Jesus. We've already talked about that. And what's going on at this time? Jesus went through the grain fields. Now... It's October and it's fall and everybody's going through corn mazes and all that jazz, right? And wearing plaid flannel for whatever reason because that's what you do in the fall. Why are they walking through grain fields? Well, that was very, very common at this time. It was normal for paths to run through people's properties and for their crops to be planted on that property. If Once we get into Matthew 13... Uh, Jesus will be telling parables about seed that is sown along the way on the path. It's very common for paths to run through the crops and that's the way people traveled because you planted crops on your property and if people had to travel through your property, they needed a way to do that. So they're walking through the grain fields, which was just very common. They're walking in these crop paths, basically we can say. But here's the big deal. They're walking on these crop paths on the Sabbath. Now there's another time stamp. Okay? So we know that this was what we would call Saturday. Um, and we've already talked about how the Jews had some very specific and very arduous regulations for what could and could not be done on the Sabbath. We're not going to spend a lot of time there this morning. But they had regulations as far as what was considered work, what was not. The Pharisees adhered to these made-up regulations in order to, quote, keep the Sabbath. Their system, the Pharisaical system, the rabbinical Jewish system, was centered around keeping rules and performing to those standards in order to be good Jews. They thought, it would seem, that that, their performance, their keeping the rules and the laws and the regulations, they thought that that was what pleased God. So, 
Here we are with Jesus and His disciples going through a grain field on the Sabbath. And it also just so happens that His disciples were hungry. Ever happened to anybody? Ever get hungry? Ever go walking and get hungry? We went walking yesterday and we got hungry. Happens, right? Nothing wrong with being hungry, except we don't like it. Anything wrong with being hungry on the Sabbath? No, no no regulations against that. But there were regulations as far as what you could do to prepare food. We'll get to that in a second. And the Jews would take extreme steps to have food ready to eat on the Sabbath so that they wouldn't have to prepare that food on the Sabbath. Well, the disciples hadn't prepared any food. But here they were with food all around them. Grain. They're in the grain fields. So they began to pluck the heads of grain and to eat. Again, this is in and of itself not wrong. Even if it was their, even if it wasn't their grain field, right? So Deuteronomy 23:25 says this, making provision for this very thing. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So God in His law made provision that if you're walking through your neighbor's grain field and you're hungry, pluck some heads. It's fine. Okay? That's what the disciples were doing and it was completely legal. So the Old Testament was plain that picking heads of grain in a grain field that wasn't yours was not just okay. It was encouraged by God in His law. So here are Jesus and His guys walking through standing grain doing what's legal under the law. No big deal, right? Well, you know, Pharisees and all. Verse 2. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to Him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, get this picture, okay? Anybody done a corn maze this, this fall? Anybody walk through a corn maze? A couple of you, okay? Now imagine walking through that corn maze and somebody just pops out. Look! What the heck? You know what? Jesus and the disciples are walking to some place. The disciples are hungry. They pick some grain heads. They probably rub them in their hands, eat the kernels that come out, and maybe they're feeling a little bit better. Got a little something in their belly. And all of a sudden, out jump the Pharisees. Aha! And they're watching what happens with great interest. There's Jesus and His disciples. Can you just hear them? Let's keep a close eye on them. You know they're heretics. They're bound to do something wrong. It's the Sabbath. And sure enough, some hungry men pluck some grain heads, open them up, eat the kernels, and ah-ha. The Pharisees pop out and say to Jesus, Look! Look! Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Aha! We knew it. We knew you were wicked. Who in their right religious minds would pluck heads of grain and then eat what they picked and rubbed open on the Sabbath? Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now are they right? Is this unlawful? Well, the Old Testament is very clear that the Sabbath is to be a day of rest. 
Okay, let's go way back. Where do we find the beginning of everything in our Bibles? In Genesis, right? Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed, blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. The law that God gave to Moses later would make it clear that the Sabbath, the seventh day, from sundown Friday till sundown Saturday, was to be recognized and observed as well. In the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord, here's that word again, blessed the Sabbath day, and made it holy. Okay? So one of the Ten Commandments makes it clear that no work was to be done on the Sabbath. It is a day that is blessed by the Lord and that is to be kept holy under the Lord. On it you shall not do any work, anybody. The Pharisees are saying that the disciples... Plucking and eating grain heads is working, and therefore they're dishonoring the Sabbath and the Lord. Now again, they had very specific metrics of what was considered work, and this qualifies. Uh, this is qualified in their voluminous writings, the rabbinical writings. And again, we won't spend any time here, but they, I mean, they had very, very specific. You couldn't lift anything that was heavier than a date which means not two dates. Forget two dates. That's crazy talk. You're just being a heretic. You're being, you must be demonically oppressed if you've got two dates in your pocket on the Sabbath because you can't carry two dates on the Sabbath. That's crazy. And, that's, and again, we, we've talked about this ad nauseum, I think. And it was just nuts. So the disciples plucking heads of grain and eating them, and again, they probably rubbed them in their hands to get the husk away so that they could eat the actual kernel and the Pharisees are just floored. And their specific metrics said that this was work. And it probably, in their writings, probably would have been okay to pick a head of grain, but odds are you couldn't do anything with it after you picked it. And these Pharisees are incensed and they bring it to Jesus' attention quickly watching to see how he deals with it. And let me just say, they ain't ready for how he's going to deal with it. Verses 3 and 4. He, Jesus, said to them, the Pharisees, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Hmm. Maybe a little bit veiled response in our evaluation. What's it mean? Well, let's look. 
Jesus addresses them, the Pharisees. And look what He says first. What's that first phrase? Go back here. He said to them, Have you not read? (laughs) Oh my. It's quite a statement. To the Pharisees, He points to the Old Testament Scriptures and says, Have you not read? He's going to reference the Old Testament, which is something they surely would have been very familiar with. Down to the jot and tittle type thing. It's like somebody saying, haven't you ever read your Bible? To the Pharisees, whose life was looking at the Old Testament and their religious rabbinical writings. Have you, have you not read? Jesus is pretty sarcastic sometimes. Hey guys, have you ever read a Bible before? And what is it that Jesus wants to know whether they've read or not? Well, He references an account from 1 Samuel 21, which we won't go there. But let me just kind of give you a rundown. David was on the run from King Saul, on the run for his life. And he comes to the priests in a town called Nob, N-O-B. David says he's been sent on a mission from King Saul, which was a lie, by the way. And that that mission was quick and secret and that he and his men didn't have time to bring any food or any preparations and now they're hungry. David asks the the priest there, Ahimelech, if there's any food that the priest can give them. Ahimelech says the only bread that they have there is the holy bread. The bread which was placed before the altar as an offering to God which showed his perpetual provision to Israel. And that's all right, I guess, but here's the problem. Only the priests were allowed to eat that bread once it was taken off the altar and replaced with fresh bread. Was David a priest? He was not. Usually there would be two stacks of six loaves and it was to be replaced with hot bread. And once it was taken away, only the priests were allowed to eat it. Now... Why would Jesus reference this account when faced with the Pharisees' accusations of the disciples breaking the Sabbath? So follow close here, okay? The Pharisees were sticklers for all things related to the law of God and their additions to that law, which they relied on to make them holy. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And we said in those times in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus was not contradicting the Old Testament Scriptures. He was contradicting their interpretation and their additions to it. So they're sticklers for those things. Jesus is using this historical account from the Old Testament... To show, listen to me, this is... There are subtleties in the historical accounts that show how God's plan and God's Word is lived out. Now be very careful here. We could really, really make some muddy water here. Yes, the Word is the Word. Capital W on both those words. But it is to be lived out in real life... And listen to me, and God is going to make sure that His will is accomplished in the midst of that real life. Let's be clear. It was not legal, according to the Old Testament, for David and his men to eat the bread that had been on the altar. They were not priests. It was not legal for David to tell a lie about the mission that he was on. 
It was still a lie. Did God strike him dead? No. Does the account in 1 Samuel visibly or openly condemn David for lying and eating the bread that he wasn't supposed to eat? The answer is no. Why? Because God gives His Word for His glory and for the good of His people. Was it okay what David did? No. Did God just look the other way and act like He didn't see it? No. It's right there in the Bible. What was it? Richard Mullen said, well, it's right there in the Bible, so it must not be a sin, right? No, it's right there in the Bible, recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God saw it, and God wanted to make sure that future generations saw it. And God looked forward to this altercation in the middle of a grain field with the Pharisees, and He said, we're going to use this. And some church in Beckley, West Virginia in 2019 is going to look at this. And then God makes sure that Jesus brings it up to these Pharisees in this grain field on this Sabbath day. But Jesus isn't done yet. We'll build this case. Stay with me. Or, have you not read in the law? (laughs) How on the Sabbath... The priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. So now nobody's supposed to work on the Sabbath, right? Nobody. Not you, your servant, your son, your daughter. Well, the priests in the temple work on every Sabbath. They keep the temple going. Offerings being offered, bread being taken and replaced, fires and candles being kept going, animals sacrificed and so forth and so on. Isn't that profaning the Sabbath? I mean, they're working for crying out loud. Doing their jobs on the Sabbath. Preparing food on the Sabbath. So Pharisees, let me ask you this, Jesus says, how are they guiltless? Why isn't God upset with them? How come they can work on the Sabbath? Jesus is condemning the Pharisees who are accusing him and his men for missing the spirit of the law. And instead of focusing on the spirit of the law, the Pharisees are majoring in the letter of the law. Back to the Sabbath. Why did God ordain the Sabbath at all? Was it to be super picky about what should or shouldn't be done? What was that spirit behind what God was doing when He established the Sabbath? Was God up there on day 7 going, okay, let's make sure it's, that we set some, some clear, angry commandments that hungry men can't pick heads of grain on this day? Of course not. Was God hiding secret traps to see if He could trick people into getting themselves in trouble on the seventh day? Of course not. God was setting aside the seventh day as a day for His people, His creation, to turn their attention to Him and to enjoy Him. It was a blessing of God. And Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and asking them in essence, have you not read this? And then He drops this bomb. 
I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Uh oh. <laughs> now it's getting real. We're not quite at your mama yet, but we're close. This is really real, okay? The priests aren't profaning the Sabbath by working and keeping the temple running on the Sabbath. And in the Jewish mind, in the Pharisaic mind, the temple worship was the very center of Jewish worship. So these priests had to have that temple functioning in order to properly worship God, right? So it was worth working in that temple, that precious temple, even on the Sabbath. And let's be clear, these Pharisees loved that temple. Herod's temple, ornate, beautiful, glorious, evoking images of wealth and privilege and power. And the Pharisees loved that temple. It was invaluable to them. There could not be any way that anybody could place a proper value on that temple for them. That's where they practiced their righteousness to be seen by others. It was the place for the Pharisees and scribes to appear holy and righteous so that they could be seen by others. It was oddly enough in their minds, I think, their house. Even though they would call it the house of God. They loved that Temple. And now with that in mind, look again at what Jesus says. I tell you, he says, something greater than the temple is here. And what's he referencing? He's referencing himself. You value your building, your temple. You value it so much that it's okay for priests to work their tails off on the Sabbath. But my guys pick some grain on the Sabbath and you freak out. But what you're missing, Jesus says, is that I am here. You're missing me. And I'm the fulfillment of everything that your law, that that temple and all that has come before me, I'm the fulfillment of all that these things were forecasting. I'm greater than your temple, Jesus says. And you're missing it. Because you don't have eyes to see, you don't have ears to hear, so accuse away because you're missing me and therefore missing God's very spirit. You're missing God's very word. You're missing God's very plan. You are missing God in your very midst. And this had to infuriate these Pharisees. For Jesus to say that anything was greater than the temple would be awful to them. For him to say that he was greater than the temple just had to boil their blood. He was so exalting himself, so making himself so valuable to God and to God's plan, he was making himself out to be God. And they just had to be beside themselves. But Jesus is not nearly done yet. Verse 7. And if you had known what this means... I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. So Jesus goes back to the Bible again. He's referenced the Pentateuch. He's referenced a historical account. And now he's going to bring up a prophet. Something that a prophet says. 
He's going to cover the whole Old Testament to make sure that they don't miss the fact that it's all talking about Him. He goes back to the Bible in the prophets to show these Pharisees that they're missing God all the way through those Scriptures. He says, and if you had known what this means, clearly showing that they don't know what this means, and that's something that they're missing and that they don't understand, is a quote from the prophet Hosea, which is part of what Luke read this morning. Hosea 6.6. 6. Let's wait for it to magically appear on our screens, because that's what's happening. I'm getting blank screens, and then boink, it pops up. I'll start reading, and then there it goes. Here's the verse that he's referencing. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now again, keep in mind, these well-versed Pharisees would know this verse backwards and forwards. And Jesus saying the first part of it would bring the whole verse to their minds. Probably that whole passage that Luke read this morning and what was before and after it. I mean, they, they, they knew their Bibles. They would know that Hosea wasn't just contrasting mercy and sacrifice, but also he was contrasting the knowledge of God up against burnt offerings. This is in keeping with the temple mindset where those sacrifices and burnt offerings would have been offered. And Jesus, in saying that the Pharisees don't know what that means, shows them and those around them that they don't know God nor what His Word really means. They're missing what it means and thus missing God and God's plan. And they show that by condemning Jesus' disciples for this grain incident. Jesus clearly condemns the Pharisees for condemning His men whom He calls guiltless. Does that mean they're sinless? No. He's just saying them plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath doesn't make them guilty. And he condemns the Pharisees for condemning his men. And he says the Pharisees wouldn't have condemned them, his men, if if the Pharisees had known their Bibles and the God who gave them that Bible. And now here comes the big one. Here comes verse 8. Four... The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Here's the your mama moment. Okay? This is the pinnacle. This is the peak of what's going on here. This is the point where the pressure reaches such a pressurous point that the point is made in a pressure-filled way. This is like your mama times a million, okay? The Pharisees who would boast in their scriptures, their temple, their sacrifices, their keeping of the Sabbath and on and on and on, hear Jesus say this, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The word for shows, the word, sorry, the word for shows that Jesus is tying all this back to what He has already said. David at the holy bread, when he ate it, wasn't guilty. The priests work in the temple on the Sabbath and they aren't guilty. Something greater than the temple is here. You don't know your Bibles. And all this is shown ultimately because for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You think you're so high and holy. You think you are God's people doing God's work and you're missing God off the map with this accusation of my guys breaking the Sabbath for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. It is an atom bomb of a statement. Jesus calls Himself the Son of Man 
which is his favorite name for himself, it seems, because he uses it all the time. That's a reference to Daniel 7, which we've looked at a couple of times already in our journey through Matthew. It's a messianic claim. To call yourself the Son of Man is to call yourself the Messiah. Based on Daniel 7, where Daniel sees one that is called the Ancient of Days handing over an everlasting kingdom, his everlasting kingdom, to one like a Son of Man. That's what Jesus is referring to when He calls Himself the Son of Man. He's calling Himself the Messiah based on that passage in Daniel. And He, Jesus, is that Son of Man and that Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Pharisees had so much faith in keeping their beloved Sabbath and were so focused on that Sabbath that they can't see that God Himself is standing in front of them and that He... He who is speaking to them is the Lord, the Master, the Creator of that Sabbath. He's saying that He is what they are really needing to focus on and they hate Him and accuse His men. I cannot imagine how shocked and angry and off the rails that this statement must have set these Pharisees. Jesus is very plainly calling Himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is very plainly saying that He is God. Now you'll run into people out there in the world who say, well, Jesus never really said He was God. Whatever. Multiple times. Things like this. For Him to call Himself the Lord of the Sabbath, the Master of the Sabbath, the Creator of the Sabbath is to say that He's God. They knew what He meant. And it's a breathtaking moment. And I'm sure they're going, what did he just say? And then the passage leaves it there. So we leave it there, but we'll come back. Then we go to verse 9. Actually, verses 9 and 10. He went on from there, so we will too, and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. So Jesus leaves here, and he goes to the synagogue, the place where they would worship together. And there's a guy there on the Sabbath who's got a withered hand. Now remember, it's the Sabbath. And the Pharisees just know that this Jesus who's doing all this healing stuff, he won't be able to resist this. He'll probably heal this withered-handed wretch. And they just can't wait for it. But not like, yay, this guy's healed. It's like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, come on. Do it. Heal him. I dare you. Not for the man's sake, but so that they might accuse Jesus of working, of healing on the Sabbath. Shows that they really did miss who he was and what he was doing and what he had just said. These rabbinic teachings about the Sabbath, and this is crazy, they did not allow for anything to be done that would help somebody get better on the Sabbath. If somebody was drowning, you could rescue them, but you couldn't perform CPR on them on on the bank of the river. Literally. That's how much they split their hairs and said what you could and couldn't do. Couldn't make anybody better because that was working. Sounds crazy. But that's what they held to. So if Jesus made somebody better on the Sabbath, He would be violating their Sabbath rules. Again, their Sabbath rules, not God's. So they ask Him, 
can you just imagine this? Here's this guy with a withered hand, and the Pharisees are going, Aha, here's the bait. Looking at a person like that, Aha, withered hand guy, we'll get Jesus with this one. So they ask him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? With a mind to accuse how he answers. And how does Jesus answer? Verse 11. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? He just confronts them and asks them if they wouldn't lift a sheep that they had out of a pit on the Sabbath. I mean, wouldn't you take hold of your sheep and lift it out if it fell? Even if it was on the Sabbath? Now they'd probably have to call a town meeting and figure out we need like 28 people because that way we wouldn't lift more than a date if we all pick up on this sheep at the same time. That's probably how they thought. But they were going to get that sheep out of the pit even if it was a Sabbath because that's their sheep. See what Jesus did there? It's almost humorous the way they think. Jesus goes on though. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus draws the analogy out to its logical conclusion and echoes something that he's taught pretty consistently. Men are worth more than animals. How much more is a man... How much more is a man than any sparrows, he would say earlier. How much more value is a man than a sheep? It's like Jesus is just saying, you guys would willingly help a sheep because it's yours, but you're upset that I might heal this guy with a withered hand. I can just imagine him shaking his head. And then he plainly says, so it is lawful, speaking in baby talk to him it seems like, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. What I'm about to do is okay. It's lawful according to the Lord of the Sabbath. It's lawful. It's okay with God. And then? Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. And just like that with a word... Jesus heals the guy. Stretch out your hand, he says. And the guy goes. And his hand is as good as the other one. I don't know. And I, don't, I definitely don't want to read anything in Scripture. But I can just imagine Jesus looking at those Pharisees as that man stretched out his hand. And I don't know if he was angry. I don't know if he was sad. Maybe both. Just imagine him shaking his head going, You guys... Now the question is, how do they respond? Repentance? Sorrow? Grief? But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. The same grace that healed a man with a withered hand hardened the hearts of these Pharisees. The same grace. Not only did they miss who Jesus was and what He was saying and doing, it enraged them. 
to the point that they now make it their top priority, their goal to try to find a way to destroy Jesus. And get this straight. They are working to find a way to have Jesus killed. They cannot stand this man who is calling himself God. They cannot stand this man who is exalting himself above their temple and their Sabbath. They cannot stand this man who is saying that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so they are enraged. They're so triggered that they have to kill this man. These holy, pious, religious men have to kill this person. Their religious system can't stand God doing anything outside of what they figured out with their human reasoning. So their only option is to kill God. Oh, they wouldn't say that. That's exactly what they're doing. They have to kill God because they hate Him as He stands before them and condemns them and their religious system. And they will not tire of trying to make this happen. Their hearts are so hard, getting harder all the time. It's all that they can do. It's all that they can think about. It's what they must do. And Jesus, God in the flesh, knows it. And He knows that it's the very reason He came to earth in the first place. So now what do we do? How do we apply this? Before we go into application, let me say this. Don't be too quick to say you wouldn't have done what the Pharisees did. A man shows up and calls himself God. What are you going to do? A man exalts himself in the synagogue and says, I'm the fulfillment of all these prophecies. What are you going to do? Now they're wrong. And they are evil and hard-hearted. I'm not taking up for them. But they are we and we are they. So we have to evaluate ourselves in light of that truth. Three W's. W-W-W. Word, ways, and work. First application point is word. Please hear me say this. This is a pretty brief application point. The purpose of the Word of God is to know the God of the Word. If our Bible reading, our Bible study, our time together on Sunday mornings doesn't lead us to the person of God, we're missing the whole point. If the purpose of the Word of God is to know the God of the Word... God desires an intimate personal relationship with His people individually and with His people collectively. God recorded all that He has done that we need to know about in a book so that we can know about Him. Be very, very, very careful about just wanting to know what the Bible says so that you can know what the Bible says, so that you can win an argument on Facebook. Jesus says in John 5, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. 
yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. We do not worship the Bible. We value the Bible immensely because it tells us who God is. The purpose of the Word of God is to know the God of the Word. So be careful in your accumulation of biblical knowledge and doctrine and theology. Nothing wrong with any of them if they lead you to the person of God. These Pharisees missed that completely. I promise you, they knew far more Scripture up here than you'll ever know in your life. And God's standing in front of them, and they missed Him. Matter of fact, they wanted to kill Him. Let the Bible lead you to the person of God. That's point one. Point two, ways, W-A-Y-S. Do not despise what God is doing and how He is doing it. Because to do so is to despise God Himself. We laugh and we joke and um, I've said it a, a, a blue million times. If I was God, I wouldn't do it that way. And that's true. But what we see in the Pharisees today in this passage is that they despised what God was doing as He stood in their midst. And in doing so, they despised God Himself. They claimed to love God. But as they saw God working with their physical eyes, they saw that He was doing things that they didn't think that He should do. And they hated Him to the point of wanting to kill Him. Literally. You cannot see what God is doing, whether you understand it or not, and despise the work without despising God Himself. You cannot separate what He does from who He is. Anybody ever experienced anything that was hard or bad? And you kind of shake your fist at God? Why are you letting me go through this? Do you not love me? Now listen, let me be clear. Nothing wrong with bringing that emotion to God. But be very careful that you're not accusing God or despising what He is doing. Back in Numbers, Numbers 14, 11, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? And what's going on here is the Israelites are rebelling and they're saying, we're going back to Egypt. Moses is not our leader. We hate everything that's going on. We're thirsty. We're hungry. We're tired of this manna. Blah, 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 blah. We hate who God is and what He's doing. Again, they wouldn't say that with their mouths, but their accusations and their despising what God was doing was exactly them despising God. And that's what God calls it. How long will this people despise me? Another thing that I've said multiple times as I've stood here on Sunday morning is look out there. It's nuts. It's scary. 
This world has lost its mind. What's God doing? Does God not care? We see this in, I don't have this up here, but Psalm 13. Listen to this. This is an important lesson for us to learn this morning. As far as despising God and His ways, even though, again, we wouldn't say that we do that. Psalm 13 is six verses, and it starts out, A Psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. See the switch there? You see the U-turn? How long? How long? Will you forget me? Do you hate me? Why will my enemies be exalted over me? But I've trusted in your steadfast love. And even in the midst of all this that's going on, the Lord has dealt bountifully with me, is what David says. Don't despise what God is doing because you cannot despise what God's doing without despising God Himself, which is exactly what our Pharisees did today. So Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, classic. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You cannot know what God is doing. You cannot reason like God reasons. He sees the end from the beginning, and we stand in the middle of it, confused and hurt. And I'm saying, carry that to God. Don't accuse Him, and don't despise what He's doing. Cry out for understanding. Cry out for help, and worship Him in the midst of it. Or you're going to end up accusing Him, and you're going to end up hating Him. Word, ways, and finally, work. Word, ways, and work. What is our work that we're supposed to do? We say we want to work for God. We want to work the works that God would have us to work. Because we like to work, right? We love God by serving men. We love God by helping people. (laughs) And here in Matthew 10... I'm sorry, here in Matthew 12, I'm stuck in 10. These Pharisees look at hungry men. These Pharisees look at a man with a withered hand and they would have them stay that way so that their rituals could be observed. Alistair Begg says the Pharisees would have been content to leave the disciples hungry and a man with a withered hand to maintain their religious observances. And they literally asked Jesus, is it legal to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus looks and says, it's good, it's right, it's okay 
to help people on the Sabbath. So we work and we show our love to God by singing songs, that's great, by assembling here, by partaking of the table, yes. But we show our love. They will know we are Christians by our love. And our love shown primarily to other people. Why? What makes man different? What makes man worth more than many sparrows and a sheep? Because man is made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. We saw back in Matthew 10 that Jesus said if anyone helped the disciples, they were really helping Him. Here, Jesus is incredulous that the Pharisees were more concerned with man-made statutes than with actual men. And hear me say this as we finish. If your religion, quote-unquote religion, doesn't lead you to bless and help other people, then it's not Christianity. If you are more concerned with doctrine than you are about doing that which serves and encourages and helps others, you are worshiping yourself and not the God of the Bible. You're a Pharisee. 1 Corinthians 8.1 Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. Builds up who? I'm just going to love God. I'm just going to love God and serve God. How? I'm just going to lock myself up in a monastery and let men be damned because I don't care about them. No, it doesn't work that way. Last passage. For you were called to freedom, brothers, Paul says in Galatians 5. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled In one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this love is not an emotion, it's an action. Serving, blessing, helping others, even on the Sabbath. They will know that we are Christians by our love. Let's pray. God, so many times we get the cart before the horse and we begin to worship the cart in spite of the horse. You've made it clear, God, that we are to love and serve you. We are to enjoy you and you've given us your word so that we might know you better. You have shown us your ways so that we can at least grasp the fact that we can't grasp your ways. And God, you've given us a work to do. Help us to do it with true love for you and for our fellow man. Especially, Paul would say, to those of the household of the faith. May we not miss you like the Pharisees missed you. May we embrace you, not despising you, your word, or your ways, but working in the power that your Spirit gives us to bless and to serve other people. May we truly 
do unto others as we would have them do unto us. May we truly love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And as we do so, God, we will fulfill every jot and tittle of the law. And with your Spirit's help, because of the finished work of Jesus, it is possible. You have spoken a better word. May we walk in it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Stay neat with us if you can.